there's a very serious rumor going around that I just felt like I should address right up front. And there's this kind of perception that I may go long sometimes. <laughs> and it's totally not true. I went for an hour and 23 minutes the first time I spoke here, which to some people may be a little long. But I had you guys out of here by 7.30 last Saturday. That was a pretty, that was a pretty big deal. So I'm like 50-50 on whether you're getting out of here or not. So. <laughs> yeah, 7.30. All right, I got an hour and 10 minutes. Well, this will be a lot quicker than, uh, than my previous ones. I, so like, like I said, the first time I spoke here months ago, it was on, um, you know, how we use language and stuff like that and names and symbols that reveal and conceal the things that we're talking about. And that went really long. And then I spoke last week. Does anybody remember what I spoke on last week? That would be a good test. N nothing. Nothing. That's actually Simpsons. Thank you. This is like one of the... This is really weird when you, you talk about the Simpsons and the pastor's in the front. And he goes, yes. Like he's excited that I was talking about... I used an example from the Simpsons. You own God. You, you, yes. The way that we own God. Like we, we try to own God either viewing God as this large person, you know, that, that's just like a, just a really big old dude up in the sky versus um, maybe a list of properties, and we threw out the omnis, right? Omni omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. And um, how those things can act as idols, if we understand those things. And so I got feedback last, from last time that... Um, yes, that was... <laughs> Sounded more like a foghorn than anything, but it was very loud. Yes, I got feedback uh, that, uh, well, you sure do use some big words. And I did. I did throw out some big words. And I was telling uh, my friend who was here that uh, I was like, well, you know, speaking, trying to distill information as I've learned it, and I've learned it when in the big word way, uh, is difficult because we have quite the range of people here from all walks of life, right? We have some of us here, not me, are, you know, standard Stanford-trained, you know, physicians, and then there's just people like Tom that couldn't get in Stanford, so he had to... <laughs> 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 I was like, so we got, you know, that on kind of one end of the spectrum, and then we have people that you know, dropped out of seventh grade and got addicted to meth or something, like real serious stuff. <laughs> I was telling my friend who was sat here, he was here, I want to give you his name. I don't want to tell, I don't want to give it away. I want to keep his anonymity. So we'll call him uh, Jay Stewart. <laughs> no, 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 no. We'll call him Jared S. That's better. We'll call him Jared S. Keep his anonymity. <laughs> he goes, this is so funny. I was like, yeah, it was really like, I, I, I don't like being overcomplicated. He goes, I lean toward the seventh grade side of things. Yes. <laughs> So now I've kept Stuart in mind as I created this. So, I mean, Jared S. <laughs> so, as I usually do, I have this idea, Coach says, can you speak? I say, sure. And I try to formulate an idea ahead of time and all this other stuff. And then, usually as I get closer to when I'm supposed to speak, I just, something snaps in my brain and I end up going kind of a completely different direction. And... I thought, I spoke on God and our understanding of God and these properties of God and all this other stuff, and, and 
concluded the, the idea, and it kind of pulled out this idea that God is love. And that's kind of how I wrapped it up. And then I had another aspect of this that I wanted to get into today. And um, I thought at Thursday, I was talking to Patty, and I was like, I don't know. I feel like I'm supposed to change. Like, I don't know. I don't know where this is going. I feel like maybe I should do something different. And then Friday, I was like, you know what? I'm committed to this. I feel like it's a good idea. I'm on it. And so I stayed up until like 1.30 in the morning, getting this stuff out. And then 9 a.m. this morning, I completely changed my mind. <laughs> so, um, so this is going to be kind of more of an off-the-cuff thing, and I'll kind of explain why. There's my uncomfortability that I always express over here. So there's something about being like up on a stage, or when you have like this music stand in front of you, you're behind a lectern or something like that. Is it? It can come across as like a with an air of authority, or that this person speaking to you has something to share to you that's just hopefully something you don't know or why. And I just, I kind of want to like get all that off the stage and let you know that like I, th- these thoughts and these things that I share or as I've spoken in the past or whatever, like I stand on the shoulders of people who've had these ideas their own, not necessarily mine. Um, and I have no authority. I have no, I have no ability to tell you that I've got this thing figured out or whatever. And, and I think as I said yesterday or last week, which was that the way I kind of teach and the way I kind of like do stuff is I, I kind of point to the thing I'm talking about. Um, you ever have a kid ask you a question, like ask, dad, you know, what does this mean? And it's like a word that you know exactly what it means, but the only way you can explain to the kids is by using the word and the definition. Like, I feel like I'm that with a lot of these things. Like, I don't, I don't know how to word it differently. <clears throat> so, all that's just to say that um, these are thoughts that have kind of been bubbling in my mind most recently, um, and they've been spurred by just life in general. Uh, it's been a rough week in our household. Uh, we've had a lot of things going on. We've had a lot of stress. And it's uh, at nine o'clock this morning, we found out that Emily's dad, um, he's, uh, his name's Doug, super, super cool guy, super, like super fit. Like when he was 50, he decided I'm going to do the SDP in one day. And he like did it. Um, He's the kind of guy that's like, well, it's 5am, I better get up and do something. And I don't know if you noticed, I'm not exactly that kind of guy. <laughs> I'm more of the, oh, it's 5 a.m., I should go to bed now kind of guy. But he's always been super fit. He's always been super kind, very gentle type person. And we found out today that um, he had to go to the hospital here in Centralia, and then they have uh, moved him by ambulance up to um, Capitol. And there's some sort of thing with his heart, and they don't know what that is. And so he's undergoing tests and stuff right now. And so uh, that kind of spurred, along with everything else that's happened this week in our life, I just felt like for me to talk on anything other than what I'm going to kind of approach here would just be not what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I'm just asking that you guys bear with me as I maybe fumble through this or try to get these ideas out that might not come naturally on their own. 
And uh, it's also been kind of a hard, like, past couple weeks for not just me. I mean, our, our stuff is tiring and exhausting, but, like, we've, we've had, we have a child up in Seattle right now, right, undergoing some crazy stuff. That's stressful. Um, that's hard to hear. We have people who were sick last week. Um, we've got, I mean, just keep going on. If you have enough friends, eventually you're going to run into somebody who somewhere in your life on any day is going to be suffering or undergoing some sort of trial, right? Sometimes it's you, but sometimes it's people you care about. And like, that's hard. That is a hard thing to deal with. And, and you know, my, my second oldest child, Will, had asked me last week, like, what's, what's the thing I fear most? And I, which is really upsetting. What kind of question is that, Will? You ask your dad, what do you fear most? This question right here. Uh, But uh, I had to just think that being helpless. Feeling helpless is probably the worst thing that I can feel in my mind. Like, has, has anybody here ever felt helpless? Have you ever felt like there's nothing in your control, and whether it's you and maybe your health or something, or somebody you love, they're going through something, like, there's nothing you can do. And if you've been there, and if you've experienced that, that's a really, really terrible feeling. And so, with all this going on, and with my change this morning, I just decided I'm just going to do it this way. I told Emily, hey, I will take care of the kids. You go on up and see your dad, and just text me and let me know how things are going. And I got all the kids here, and they've eaten types of food, and, <laughs> and they're doing all right. So, we did it. Now, if I could just get home with all the kids I brought, or the equal number, it doesn't have to be the same kids, I'm going to be all right. So being stressed and being maxed out and all this other stuff. Has anybody here ever been so stressed you've gotten diarrhea? Don't raise your hand. You don't have to raise your hand. Stuart, you can put your hand down. It's fine. He wasn't raising his hand. I just like to make fun of Stuart. Or Jared, as I call him. Like, our bodies respond weird to stress. They do different stuff. So much is not in our control. And so this does kind of tie into what I spoke on last week, where we spent time understanding maybe the character of how we can understand God, or how we understand God in terms of our relationship or how we move forward, or that walk of faith, or the God who's with us. I talked about Yahweh, right? He's, I am who I am. I am, I will be who I will be. This God that presents himself, not necessarily as a fact, or this or that, or some sort of proposition, but God who presents himself as a journey. A God who opens doors. A God who calls us forward, and we don't always know where we're going. You know, it's like it says about Abraham, that he set out not knowing where he was going. So today, this particular message is going to be on our humanity. I mean, if we can understand God as this, um, this journey, this uh, calling, this opening of doors, and, and, and that, I, I want to reflect a little bit on our creatureliness, if you will. And I think that this ties into kind of our understanding of suffering and evil and these things that we all go through life. You guys follow me so far? Yes, all three of you are following me. Good. 
So sometimes our view of God can at times reduce God to something that we can understand or control. And I talked last week about the danger of that. Likewise, our view of ourself and how we function in this world and how we contribute to this world. And we see ourselves, we have a tendency, have a tendency to see ourselves as the center of our world, right? And I'm not even talking about selfishness. Like selfishness is easy to point out. I'm talking about like, we kind of view this world through our lens. It's the only lens we have in one way that we're the only ones we truly know ourselves and hopefully, or that we're trying to, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's not about me. It's about you, Dan. This is all about you. No, right. <clears throat> like if the threat of, of seeing God maybe in these false ways or in these ways that can lead us into uh, just dead ends is, is always possible. The way that we view ourselves and how we live in and among this world also has for, can make for an impact in how we live and move and have our being, if you will. And so, just like I did with God, I'd like to maybe change the lenses through which we see ourselves. And it doesn't necessarily give us new information, and that's something that I've stressed multiple times. We're not necessarily getting more properties. It's not like we have all these new things that I'm, I'm going to share with you and that we understand ourselves in this slide or whatever. It's like looking through life with a different set of glasses. And so one of the first things I think that we need to recognize as people is to recognize our materiality, like we're physical beings, aren't we? And we're complex physical beings. And we're not just complex physical beings. We are complex physical beings amongst other complex physical beings, amongst a whole entire world of this crazy interconnected processes and agents and whatever that all interact in what we call the universe. But our physicality is a part of who we are. And I think especially for our times and especially since we've had people like Descartes that have stressed the I think, therefore I am type uh, division of the world into physical things and spiritual things, that's not necessarily bad, but I think what we tend to focus on in the church is that this is all just like spiritual stuff. And the fact of the matter is we're physical beings. We are physically here and there are lots of parts of our environment that are going to have some say in how we understand and view the world. And that's okay. That is not in and of itself bad. The idea of recognizing our physicality of how we live in this world serves as an important point that I'll get to in a moment. Cliffhanger. Hold on to that thought. You're going to need it for later. <clears throat> this idea of our physicalness, our creatureliness, if you will, also can have an impact and address our posture toward suffering. <clears throat> and suffering is really kind of our lot in life a little bit. And how we understand ourselves will help us in how we approach the question of suffering and how we suffer. So this is the only big word that I have here. Does anybody know what a theodicy is? Have you heard of a theodicy? One person. Okay, good. Good, then I, I don't feel bad sharing it because I know what it is. Um, 
a theodicy is kind of uh, an idea or a concept that explains why there's evil and suffering in this world. A theodicy is just an answer for why does God allow evil? Why does God allow suffering? And for as long as people have had a belief in God, we have also had people that have struggled with the question of why, why there is so much suffering and pain here. And there are a lot of theodicies, many of them, by many very intelligent Christians and Jews and all sorts of theists. And I find them valuable, just like I said last week where we talked about the properties of God. While they are not God, I find them valuable in how we ruminate and understand our relationship to God. Theodicy functions the same way. Having ideas for why things are in this world this way, that's good, but we can't, they don't necessarily, I'm of the opinion that there isn't really a, a good explanation necessarily. And I'll say that because I also think that that's not the important thing as we are physical creatures to understand. A theodicy is just something that tries to explain why evil and suffering are the way they are. But if I were to give you that, if I had it, which I don't, that would do nothing for where you are currently if you are suffering or undergoing some sort of trial. So we have to understand the value of these things that we ruminate on and consider. So, like I said, I scrapped what I was working on this week, stayed up late last night, and then I changed gears this morning. That's just kind of how I roll, I guess. And so I want to start with a few ideas that I think will point us in the right direction regarding our creatureliness and hopefully help us a little bit in understanding our place amongst the world where there's suffering and evil. First point I want to point out, and this has to do with the posture, this has to do with the lenses I was telling you that we see through the world as Christians specifically, that we are created. That this universe is a creation. There are many ways of viewing the world that we live in, but as Christians, one of the core doctrines is that God is the creator of all that exists, right? And as God is the creator, we then are the creatures that God has created. And I think viewing where we stand in this world with that posture, the recognizing right off the bat that we are creatures. We are a part of creation. We do not stand separate from creation. We aren't some entity that is untouched by creation or that somehow this isn't this idea of physicality or materiality or whatever you want to call it doesn't apply to us. It very much does. And this goes back to Genesis chapter 1. It says, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was out shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea, and God's wind swept over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And so light appeared. God saw how good the light was. God separated the light from the darkness, and God named the light day and the darkness night. Most Christians here have heard that opening phrase, that opening poem of Genesis, right? And there's a lot more into that, but all I want to unpack out of that is that we live as part of a world that is created, as part of a universe that is created. I 
think ultimately what that boils down to is that just this world is contingent on something. This world as it is doesn't explain itself. And as Christians, we say that God is what it is that created all that we know. Psalm 8, verse 3 says, When I look up at the skies, at what your fingers made, the moon and the stars that you set firmly in place, what are human beings that you think about them? What are human beings that you pay attention to them? Or in other translations is, what is man that you are mindful of him? Right? And that psalm actually goes on to declare our responsibility toward that. And Job, I talked on last week, chapter seven, verse or chapter twelve, verse seven, says, "But ask the behemoth, and he will teach you; the birds in the sky, and they will tell you; or talk to the earth, and it will teach you; the fish of the sea will recount it for you. Among all these, who hasn't known that the Lord's hand did this, and whose grasp is the life of everything, the breath of every person? Doesn't the ear test words, and the palate taste food? In old age is wisdom, understanding in a long life." All of these things are just the point of the central fact that we did not create ourselves or that this whole mess of things that you see around you as I'm throwing sweat is, is not mindless. It's not purposelessness. It's not, it has meaning. It has value. As Christians, we see that everything has value and that value is given to it by the God that created it. I think because we've made such amazing advances in science and even in history and other things like that, that we get this false sense that we really kind of are the commanders of this world, that we've, we've mastered these things or we're on our way toward mastering these things, that we get this heightened sense of what it means to be human, and being human means to control and to own and to categorize. And once we've categorized something, then we, we've, we've conquered that thing. And I just don't think that's true. And I, I didn't have time to look it up, but one of the best examples that I had heard of this was, if we think of our, our knowledge of the world, our knowledge of the universe and our place in it as an island, right? These are all the things that we've learned. As we continue to grow, that island grows. But with it also grows the shore that we're standing on. Like gaining knowledge is good, and there's nothing wrong with that. And being able to cure polio and other things like that is a great gift that we've been given, this ability to at some level control the world that we live in. But we have to recognize that our island of knowledge, no matter how it grows, is always going to be skirted by an entire ocean that we do not understand. Understanding our place, understanding, picture it like um, a huge like hangar, right? You've seen those big hangars that they like build Boeings in and stuff like that? Picture yourself, and picture it just like a, a huge hangar that's just filled with stuff. Everything. And then picture us standing at the corner of this hangar. Our life represented maybe by this room that we are in. How much of that hangar do we really think that we're going to understand? We are limited. We are limited. And here's the really crazy part. We're a part of that hangar that we're studying. Like that's really trippy, like matrix stuff going on there. (laughs) 
were created. We, by being a part of this universe, by being a part of the world, the cosmos, as, as they say, we do not have that God's eye view of the world. And we really like to think we do. And when we see our physicality and our materiality and all this stuff as though we are the commanders of our own destiny, we really overestimate where our place in this world is. And that ties, like I said, into this concept that we are created. <clears throat> so then we turn to suffering and evil and related to this concept that we are created. And people had ideas, and I think people still have these ideas, and I see this a lot, even in our modern discussions of, say, homelessness or drug addiction or whatever, which is that when people are going through that, or they are homeless, or they are whatever, that they've somehow earned that. That, well, if they had just done this, or if they had just got this together like this, or all they have to do is just pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, and they'll get out of it all on their own. It's a completely inadequate way of even understanding how it is that we live in this world. It gives way too much credit to the freedom that we have. And I don't deny that we have freedom. I just think it's severely limited by the environment that we live in. <clears throat> in the times of Job and in the book of Job, as we read, his friends, friends, I'm going to use that in scare quotes, they had a lot of ideas about what, why things were going on with Job. They had a theodicy, and that theodicy was that if you did something wrong, you were punished for it. Job is being punished, obviously. Therefore, he has done something wrong. It's a simple, simple system, and it works out pretty well for the most part as long as you're not the one undergoing the suffering or the trial. It's super easy to point to somebody and be like, well, I know what your problem is right there. You're just a sinner. You've obviously done something to anger the big sky god. This is a foolish way of viewing suffering, and it just doesn't, I don't even know if it makes a lot of sense. And I'm not going to deny that there are strands in the Bible that present this, but there are also counter strands in the Bible to argue against it. Job is a good place to start if you're looking for a refutation that bad things happen to bad people. <clears throat> this is also addressed in the New Testament. John chapter 9, verse 1. It says, As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus' disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned so that he was born blind, this man or his parents? Isn't it interesting the options that are given there. So this guy's blind, and what are our options? Somebody sinned. It's like a lose-lose question there. No matter how you answer, you're answering incorrectly, or you're denigrating some part of that equation. <clears throat> and how did Jesus respond? Neither. In a very thick Australian accent. Right? <laughs> Neither. 
Foster's. That's the only Australian word I know. <clears throat> Luke chapter 13 says, Some who were present on that occasion told Jesus about the Galileans whom Pilate had killed while they were offering sacrifices. He replied, Do you think the suffering of these Galileans proves that they were more sinful than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die just as they did. What about those 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were more guilty of wrongdoing than everyone else who lives in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die just as they did. So this is kind of a confusing passage because, one, it's saying, no, they did, they did nothing wrong to deserve a tower falling on them. Okay? It's like Jesus is being... But then he also says, you will all, unless you repent, you too will die like that. I don't think Jesus is threatening people with like tower falling, you know, threats or whatever. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what Jesus is pointing out is that he says, unless you change your hearts and lives, meaning if you quit seeing the atrocities or the suffering that happens to other people as something that those people have brought on themselves, when something bad and terrible happens to you, people will also see you through that lens. Does that make sense? Interesting how that turns it around. Empathy is a very good key to understanding a lot of these concepts. So we have a very strong presence in the Bible that suffering is not caused just because we do bad things. I will also, and I just want to add this onto the end of this whole topic, there are consequences that people will pay for their behavior. Don't get me wrong. And the Bible is clear on that too. Sometimes the things that somebody is suffering is because they've made woefully terrible decisions. Okay? This is not denying any of that. I'm just saying that as a theodicy to explain why people endure evil and suffering, it's, that's a non-starter for Christians, and it should be. We're not the center of this universe. We exist alongside innumerable other agents and processes. We make ourselves the arbiter of truth with regards to suffering and evil. We miss the opportunity to do the only thing within our power, and that's to learn and to grow from our suffering. So when we undergo suffering, when we understand that we are just material beings, that we are physical, I shouldn't say just, but that we are physical beings, when we understand that, <clears throat> we, we miss out on the opportunity to transcend these physical bodies. And I say it in this way. The ability to recognize that we're physical people, part of creation, in and of itself transcends that physical creation. I don't know how to word that better. And like I said, I'm flying by the seat of my pants here. But the idea is that the recognition of it lifts you, in one sense, out of it. Kind of tied together. I, I, I don't know how to quite word this, so I've found somebody that said it better than I did, so I'm going to read a quote from them. This guy is, uh, I think he taught at Princeton for a long time. His name's Diogenes Allen. He says, Our position in the physical and the social world is that of but one reality among many, in a system of interconnected events, 
most of which are utterly beyond our control. What is beyond an individual's control can sometimes injure an individual's wealth, social position, body, and even bring utter destruction. In such circumstances, an individual's only real freedom is the manner in which one responds to untoward events beyond one's control. We can complain about our misfortune, or without degradation, we can bear whatever comes, even death, by seeing it, its necessity, and yielding to it courageously and magnanimously. I don't know what it means to look death in the eye and face it magnanimously, but I can tell you the idea that he's getting across here is when you recognize our physicality and we recognize how limited we are in our power, our ability to control stuff. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a really personal example is my father-in-law. The guy's super fit. The guy's taking great care of himself. He's, he's energetic. He's, a, you know, all this other stuff. And he's in a hospital today because he's having some sort of unknown heart issue. And first of all, I don't think it's his fault. Okay? There's so many contingencies in this world that set things up. We just don't control it. Now, don't go taking that and run in the other direction with it. It was a, some sort of nihilism, the hedonism. We're just going to live how we live then and throw caution to the wind and all those stuff because you will suffer the consequences of that too. Okay? All right. Thank you. Thank you for accepting that. Our ability to reflect and remember gives us the unique ability to, to transcend our physicality. This transcending aspect allows us to see ourselves in the wider picture of the universe, even if we don't have answers to why. And I hope you get that. I'm still not giving you an answer why these things happen, only how it is that we can respond to them as Christians that believe that we are creatures of a creator God. To quote Diogenes again, says, but to approach nature with the expectation that we ought to be better looked after makes it unlikely that we will learn from our suffering. Suffering can teach us that we are a very small part of the universe and that we are not to expect as much as we do from its workings. When this is learned, we can then see more soberly and accurately what it does provide for us. What it does provide gives us ample reason to be grateful in spite of the tragedies its workings produce, whether for us or for others, indeed, in our humbled and more realistic condition, we can see the glory of the entire world order and be grateful for our capacity to yield ourselves to it courageously and magnanimously, even when we are caught in its workings. That mental thing I was telling you about, the idea that once we understand our physicality and how we fit in this world, almost kind of lifts our thoughts out of that, that's exactly what he's talking about here. One more quote from Diogenes, and that's where I'm done. You can read the book yourself. It says, For a Christian, nature operates as it does, following its intrinsic principles, not merely of its own accord, but because it is so created and presently sustained by God. In saying, yes, Father, and he's talking about in saying this acceptance that we understand that God is the creator, to the unavoidable effects of nature on us, we submit to nature's might as something that obeys another, God. And not to it merely as a senseless destructive force. Through this act, believers claim that the gracious presence of God is known. 
It flows into oneself and it gives a felicity. You talk about big words. This guy's got big words. That, that means a happiness, a joyfulness. It gives to oneself, it, it flows into oneself and gives a happiness or joyfulness that is beyond the calculation of the pluses and minuses of the pleasant and unpleasant things in this life. What it's doing is we don't like add up like some people want to do. Well, we have this many good things and we've had this many bad things, therefore our life is good. Or we have way more bad things than we do good things and therefore our life is bad. When a very large chunk of the world is surviving on less than a dollar a day, I really hope Christians have something different to offer them than just make sure you get your economics right that you have more good things than bad things. And how many people do you know in this world have many things and are miserable? Right? Like, it's almost like the loss of these things or recognizing that we don't control these things is what gives us the freedom to enjoy those things as they are. Instead of those things, I guess, maybe enjoying us in a very weird way. So last week, I ended and wrapped up kind of this whole discussion. Of, I mentioned the concept stated in the Gospel of John that God is love. Agape. You guys remember that Greek word, agape? The sort of selfless, self-transcending, life-giving love. If we consider this type of love primordial, meaning that it's, it's, it comes before all other things, if we consider it a primordial aspect of God, or his leading characteristic, if you will, it might not give us a why, but it can give us a model for understanding the world we live in in regards to suffering or whatever. So this could be construed as a theodicy, and I don't want it to be. I, like I said, I want to give a general... I'm not convinced that there's a perfect explanation out there. But as we're talking about how we posture ourselves in relation to the entire world and our creator God, I think this goes away toward that. It moves us in the right direction. So, if agape is true, God's primary nature is self-giving. It's existence-bestowing. Paul Tillich had a fancy word for it. He said it's called God is the ground of being. John Macquarie, a Scottish theologian, he referred to God at, God's nature as letting be. That God's nature, God's primary condition of love is that of giving existence to other things on their own. He's the thing that kind of powers this thing that we live in, if that makes sense. You guys ever been on a big ship in the sea? You ever put your hand on the rail? What can you feel? You feel that engine vibrating through the whole thing, right? God is kind of like and I'm using a model here, I'm using a metaphor, he's kind of that engine that gives existence to everything that we know and love. And that's because God's nature, his primordial nature, is one of self-giving, existence-bestowing love. So in 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, if we are disloyal, he stays faithful because he can't be anything else than what he is. Interesting. So if God, as Christians understand it, is this agape love, then can God do anything against his own nature? 
getting kind of deep there, but the idea is that God is faithful to his nature of agape love. That God is faithful as a creator. God is faithful as the sustainer of all that we have. <clears throat> There's a term, a theological term for this. It's called kenosis. And it comes from Philippians 2, where it talks about Jesus emptying himself to accept the form of a slave. And I'll read that in a moment. But kenosis just means a giving of yourself towards something, right? And Thomas J. Ward, he's a theologian who's thought a lot about this kenosis aspect in God. He says, the distinguishing feature of a central kenosis, that's his little system, is its claim that God cannot deny God's own nature of self-giving love. So God cannot deny himself. God necessarily gives freedom agency, self-organization, or spontaneity to creatures. That would be us. We are creatures. We are part of a created order. Because the divine nature is self-giving, others empowering love, and God cannot deny himself, God cannot withhold, override, or fail to provide these gifts to creation. The creator necessarily gives, and these gifts are irrevocable. So if this model of God is true in any way, shape, or form, this model of understanding God's providence as his self-giving love to existence, to us, to our, what we call creation, it means that maybe we should see God less in terms of the angry big man in the sky who's crushing people who are bad with bad things. Maybe seeing God less of this coercive power in our universe and seeing more of God as this persuasive pull. Maybe agape expresses itself not in coercion, but in being persuasive, of opening doors. It's the Abraham concept of he took off not knowing where he was going. I would argue that if this model of God is a valid way of understanding how God works in relation to creation here, that it was by its own nature a very risky thing to do. It's weird to think of God as risking himself or God pouring out God's self in this way. <clears throat> but I think that we have good biblical warrant for understanding a God who pours out himself, a God who risks himself in order to call people toward him. <clears throat> we as Christians believe that God has revealed himself in Jesus. We call him the author and the perfecter of our faith. In Philippians 2, it says, Therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any sharing in spirit, any sympathy, complete my joy by being the same way having the same love, being united and agreeing with each other. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. And now we get into one of the earliest hymns that we know that the church had. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider God or he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. 
But he emptied himself. That's that kenosis word. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Risky. Therefore God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names, so that the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth, might bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen, right? It's a very upside-down way of looking at things, and I say that from my perspective. Growing up, as your typical middle-low-income white kid in America, the idea of seeing a God who risks himself, who pours himself out, who risks creation, who gives value and worth to these things, is, well, what I've set out to do from the beginning, a different way of looking at the entire world that we live in. I want to share a story. What's the time? Where am I at? What am I at with time? 707. Oh, I got tons of time. I can read this so slow. <laughs> it's really bad when the first thing somebody says to you is, please be done before 8 when you get here. Just be done before 8. That was meant, yeah. So there's a lawyer from Chicago. And uh, he owned quite a bit of property and... Uh, in 1871, a huge fire swept through and destroyed his entire life, as well as, or his financial life, I should say, destroyed all his wealth, as well as uh, his two-year-old son died in this great fire that Chicago had. In 1873, the economy from where he was was still taking a downturn, Jane knows who it is. She's already, <laughs> um, already taken a, a downturn. And so he had a plan to take his family to Europe. And last minute things came up and he was unable to make the ship. So he put his wife and his daughters on the ship and sent them to Europe only to find out later that the ship collided in the ocean with another ship and sank. And you guys have probably heard his wife responded to him in a telegram with two words, saved alone. His four daughters died in the collision in the middle of the Atlantic, and his wife was the only survivor. His name is Horatio Spafford, and he went on to write a song called, I get choked up, It Is Well With My Soul. And while he was traveling to meet his wife, as they passed the area in the ocean where the ships had collided and sank, he penned these words, and I'm just going to read them to you. It's a beautiful song. It's one of my most favorite songs. And I'm sharing it with you not to make you like super sad. That's not my goal. <clears throat> or to evoke some sort of really super strong emotional thing. But I think that, like, as humans, we learn from other humans, right? When you're born, you're a baby, you pick up things from that mother that's holding you. 
And you're kind of, our whole life is kind of being imprinted in a way by those who are around us. See a little baby and you see the mom stick the tongue out at the baby, the baby will do what? Stick his tongue out at the mom, right? If the baby has a binky in its mouth and you stick your tongue out, when you take the binky out later, the baby will stick its tongue out. It's how we learn. It's how we, we're, we're raised. And that's why I say that this control, like there's nothing like, there's not necessarily some intrinsic me that has been there and it just kind of grows and has this sort of thing. No, we're, we're grown in community. The I that is me, the I that is you, is a product of your environment, of growing up in this way. And so I, I read this in hopes that, gosh, I hope that nobody, nobody here would ever experience this kind of loss. To lose five children in two different accidents in terrible ways, that's unfathomable. I have, as a parent, I have no concept, and honestly, I'd just be happy to continue to have no concept of what that feels like. Okay? But my desire is that I can maybe glean from other Christians who've been there, who've experienced the depths of that type of suffering in a way that should I ever suffer that way, I too can say it is well with my soul. So he writes, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Verse 2 says, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pain shall be mine, for in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. I actually have that underlined because that's such a powerful statement for those who are suffering. We can't control our suffering. We can mitigate, we can do these other things, but we're not as in much control as we think. But we believe in a God who can give peace to our soul. It says, but Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. A song in the night, O my soul. <clears throat> the only thing I didn't touch on in this, which is also a very critical part of our Christian faith, is that of hope. We have hope. We have hope behind all the suffering and chaos that we see of loss and of evil and of death, that behind it all is a good God who cares for his creatures. A God who, as promised, will someday 
not just overcome the world or not just destroy it and create a new better one, but a God who will redeem not just this world, but its history. We believe in a God that doesn't just take bad things and get rid of them and make new things. We're talking about a God who transforms evil and suffering into good. I don't even know what that looks like. I can't fathom it. I also understand that the imagery that we have in the Bible regarding that hope comes in many different forms. It's imaginative. It's, it's important that we understand that we might not have the answer to how God can do that. But I have hope that the God who created this world and sustains it can redeem it too. And I pray that maybe even sometimes when I'm happy, that that too would be well with my soul. So just constantly living in that reality, we are creatures that are sustained by a loving God. And so, <clears throat> a lot of you here, many of you here, if you're if you aren't currently going through some sort of suffering or pain or sadness or whatever, you probably have been. And statistically, you probably will be. <clears throat> so trust in that God that's bigger than all of this. Don't think that you should be able to understand it or grasp it or even have an answer for it. That's not ours to give. The only thing that we control is our response to this terrible, terrible situations that we face sometimes. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy, and we thank you that you are a God who redeems, that you are a God who works in and through, above, under, all these things. We thank you that... We thank you for our creatureliness. We thank you for our physicality, our materialness. We thank you that this is, despite appearances at times, a good world and an amazing thing. We pray that you would work in and through our hearts, that you would work in the lives of everybody here, that we as a community, as a koinonia, would come together and express that love to one another and to those outside of this community. That, God, we, we understand that you are the God that suffers with us, not apart or separate or far away from us. We thank you for the only word that we can give this, which is grace. And we pray, Father, that your grace would be ever-present, both in our joys and in our sadness. And we thank you for your loving kindness. We just ask that you go before our weekend here. We go before this week. And for those who are suffering, for those who are experiencing evil or loss or pain or any of these things, that you, God, would be a peace to their soul. That you would grant us that peace that passes all understanding. That we can live and move and have our being in you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.